Today on Ag News Daily. We believe that's the first step and forms the basis and base, the foundation, if you will, uh, of the rest of the work. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome back to another episode here of the Ag News Daily Podcast on this Thursday, March 2nd edition. And Jennifer, I'm going to try to make it through today, but I have to apologize to our listeners. I'm feeling a little scratchy this morning, so hopefully my voice doesn't give out, but it's got this nice husky tone to it, I think. (laughs) I think you are sounding great and will definitely make it on through from my end, at least. (laughs) Well, that's good. You're going to have to carry the team today. (laughs) So let's kick things off here, Jennifer, with some news for this Thursday morning. What you got for us? Definitely. Jumping into my first story of the morning, I have the National Cattlemen's Beef Association has again asked Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack to take immediate action and suspend imports of beef from Brazil indefinitely. The request comes after Brazil failed to report another atypical case of bovine spongiform encephalopathy to the World Organization for Animal Health within the 24-hour reporting requirement. The case was first identified on January 18th and then confirmed, excuse me, and then confirmed on February 22nd. NCBA President Todd Wilkinson says the organization has asked the USDA to keep the border closed to Brazil until the country can demonstrate it can follow the trade rules that govern other nations. NCBA says Brazil has a long history of failing to report BSE cases in a timely manner and previously sent a letter to the USDA in 2022 requesting a stoppage of Brazilian beef imports until a thorough audit of Brazil's animal health and food safety system. NCBA, along with the U.S. Cattlemen's Association and R. Calf USA, are supportive of bipartisan legislation that has been introduced and would halt imports of Brazilian beef, Delaney. Yeah, and this is definitely a big blow for Brazilian beef and Brazilian agriculture as beef is one of their primary exports coming out of the country, Jennifer. So certainly not positive news for Brazilian producers, but could be a potential window of opportunity here for U.S. producers. As we know, China has stopped imports of Brazilian beef and other countries have started to follow suit. So it could provide an opportunity for U.S. producers to potentially step in there and snap up some of that lion's share. But let's keep our attention focused here on Brazil because we got fresh estimates from Stonex who raised their Brazilian soybean crop estimate once again by 454,000 metric tons to a one point, or excuse me, a 154.7 million metric tons. They said firm yields in other areas of Brazil are expected to more than compensate for any of the losses caused by drought in the Rio Grande do Sul region in southern Brazil. And they've also actually raised their estimates for the Safrina corn crop by 7.1 million metric tons. Both of their crop estimates here would be record large forecasts, Jennifer, for Brazil and what they've ever produced in the past. So certainly a rosier outlook coming out of Brazil. The big question mark, of course, is still what's to come out of Argentina. 
Absolutely. And diving into my next article of the morning, legislation that would crack down on imitation dairy product labeling has been reintroduced in the U.S. Senate. Brody Staple is the president of Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative, and he tells Brownfield their research shows the need for properly labeling dairy and imitation products so consumers know what they're getting. If a plant-based product says it's cheese or milk, they certainly think it's dairy products. And it's important, excuse me, it's unfortunate because milk and dairy have been around for a long, long time and have always had a nutritious association with it, Staple says. He also says most consumers are fooled by the labels. One third of customers in a survey that Edge Dairy did believe that the products contain protein or that they're higher quality than dairy. But the truth is that the imitations don't really have the same nutrition level as real dairy. The Dairy Pride Act was reintroduced Tuesday by Republicans Jim Risch of Idaho and Susan Collins of Maine, along with Democrats Peter Welch of Vermont and Tammy Baldwin of Wisconsin. If passed, the law would prohibit using dairy terms, including milk, yogurt, and cheese, on imitation products made from nuts, seeds, plants, and algae. Staple says the Food and Drug Administration already has rules in the books, Delaney, but has failed to enforce them. Yeah, that would certainly be a huge, huge win for dairy producers who have been fighting for this direction for quite some time, Jennifer. But it appears Washington, D.C. is quite busy this week, as I have some other news here as well. First on the books, EPA has officially approved the petition for eight states to approve year-round E15, but with a bit of a catch. These eight states that have petitioned for year-round E15 will see that through, but not until 2024 is when that will go into effect. The agency announced on Wednesday during the National Ethanol Conference in Orlando, Florida, that they would see through these eight of nine states that petitioned for year-round E15. Those eight states included Illinois, Iowa, Minnesota, Missouri, Nebraska, Ohio, South Dakota, and Wisconsin. North Dakota was the lone state that petitioned the agency and did not receive approval. The deputy director of EPA's Office of Transportation and Air Quality told the ethanol industry audience at the conference on Wednesday, the agency determined those states provided enough information to support the move that would provide more, more than enough information to support the move to essentially put E10 and E15 on equal regulatory footing to allow permanent E15 sales in those states year round. So definitely a big win there for agriculture. It does head into a public commenting period following this. And while ethanol industry officials hearing the announcement were pleased, uh, the director fielded a few questions from the audience. And there were definitely a few questions from some ethanol related folks that uh, were still a little frustrated by the fact that it was going to take until 2024 to see this put into legislation, Jennifer. But nonetheless, uh, as far as some other legislation goes related to the ethanol industry, back in 2021, uh, Representative Sherry Bustos from Illinois put forth a piece of legislation that 
was titled Next Generation Fuels Act and would have been some really big legislation here to phase in vehicles that burn higher octane fuels by 2031 and help to address the clean octane standard. She said that even though she is out of office, that high octane fuel legislation is still alive in the 118th Congress and that it is still potentially going to be able to be passed. She said she thinks it's going to be some kind of rider to another act, uh, maybe potentially thrown in with something else, some deals made, so to speak. But she does still think that there's the potential to continue to see that standalone act come through to um legislation. And this would not replace the renewable fuel standard, but would enhance it. So she says, so certainly a lot in, in Washington, DC this week, uh, related to the ethanol industry, Jennifer. Yeah. And staying on that note of DC being busy this week, potato growers have been out there advocating Potato growers want lawmakers to support specialty crop farm bill alliance priorities in the 2023 legislation. CEO Cam Quarles is the CEO of the National Potato Council. He says, we do think we've put together the best of recommendations that will make the fruit and vegetable industry in the United States competitive for the life of this farm bill. He tells Brownfield Specialty Crop Research Initiatives are overprescribed and needs additional funding. Members also want to ensure that USDA has the resources it needs to support trade promotion, technical assistance, and the exclusion and eradication of pest and disease threats. Growers are in Washington, D.C. this week for the National Potato Council's Washington Summit to advocate for farm bill and trade priorities. So there has definitely been a lot going out a lot going on out in that area this week, Delaney. There certainly has, Jennifer, because while that has been going on, we also saw the U.S. House Ag Committee meet to discuss some potential farm bill updates as we see the 2018 farm bill deadline uh, looming. The 2018 farm bill officially expires this fall, Jennifer. And so, of course, D.C. is busy trying to get things pulled together there to prioritize the next farm bill. And we got some updates here from that House Ag panel hearing about some of the issues that might be important for this next farm bill. Of those issues that were mentioned at the recent hearing were things like reducing regulations, especially from an environmental perspective. Zippy Duvall, president of American Farm Bureau Federation, of course, has been very active and again, used the opportunity to mention the WOTUS rule, that that was just one of the opportunities that there has been federal overreach when it comes to regulations. The Packers and Stockyards Act was also mentioned at the hearing as a way to have lawmakers look at updating that act because under the proposed Biden administration rules under the 1921 Packers and Stockyards Act, that would protect producers from market manipulation. And they're saying, well, this is a good act to have. It needs to be a little bit more updated since it was enacted in 1921. And the last kind of uh, peg here that they discussed was crop insurance research and consolidation. Specifically, they mentioned how 
the crop insurance program is a great program, but it's time to broaden the baseline. They said the targets that have been used for many years in those crop insurance, federal crop insurance subsidies just in reality, aren't able to keep up with the growing changes that we see in the crop industry, especially when you consider the costs, input costs and commodity prices and the volatility that we see there today, as well as just the ongoing uh, weather challenges that are inevitable and seem to be increasingly more extreme. So those were some of the top issues that we heard coming out of that ag panel, but I'm sure, Jennifer, there are many others that are being discussed right now as far as the farm bill goes, and we'll stay abreast of those here on the Ag News Daily podcast. Absolutely. I agree, Delaney, and I'm all out of stories this morning to share. How about we hop into some markets? Let's do that here after one more quick ethanol mention, and that is the Thursday ethanol report. According to the USDA, corn for ethanol use totaled 443 million bushels in January, which topped traders' expectations. Most traders were pegging corn for ethanol usage to come in, Jennifer, at 436.8 million bushels. And so that was definitely a little bit of a bright spot here for the ethanol and corn industry. Through the first five months of 22-23, corn for ethanol use was 5.7% behind the same period last year. And so we do need to see corn for ethanol usage creep up a little bit here. And hopefully we will as we head into the summer driving season months. We're falling a little behind compared to USDA's forecast, but there's still plenty of time in the year to see that come to fruition. And did that help the commodity markets? Well, it certainly didn't hurt it. As we tick into the opening bell here in the overnight, May corn traded up three and three quarters cents at 639 and a half. New crop corn added a penny and a half to open at 570 and three quarters. Soybeans just slightly lower in the overnight here as the May contract shed a penny and a half to open at 1492. New crop soybeans down a penny and three quarters will open here at 1357. As we tick down to look at the hard red winter wheat markets, the May contract up two and three quarters cents in the overnight at 819. And checking out the livestock markets for today, April live cattle will open 35 cents lower at a buck 65.12. April feeders down a dollar 22 and a half to open at a buck 93.85. And April lean hogs down 22 and a half cents will open here at 84.95. Jennifer, fill us in on who we're talking to for today's interview. Absolutely. This morning, we are talking to Todd Feenstra, who is both the president of Tritium Incorporated and the director of Midwest Water Stewards. Today, it is our pleasure to bring on our guest today, Todd Feenstra. He's the president of Tritium Incorporated and the director of Midwest Water Stewards. Welcome to the podcast, Todd. Thank you. Thank you for having me today. For our listeners, just to start off with, why don't you introduce yourself to them, and then we will tackle some conversation about water. All right. Thank you. Um, I'm a professional uh, licensed geologist. Um, we're based, our firm is based out of Elkhart, Indiana. Uh, we work with high capacity groundwater and surface water withdrawals, uh, and we focus on uh, developing those supplies and then using them in a way that's sustainable. 
Um, so we not only do the design, but we do the long-term monitoring as well uh, to directly measure impacts. Uh, we've been doing this work for about 25 years, uh, done projects in uh, Wisconsin, Indiana, Ohio, uh, and uh, obviously all over Michigan. So we had kind of picked up a lead on a having a conversation with you due to an interview you had with Brownfield. And uh, in that area, you described that as the Eastern Corn Belt. Is that the region you guys focus the majority of your time and uh, resources on? Yeah, we're primarily focused at this point in the northern half of Indiana. Um, and over the last 10 years, we've been working, or almost 15 now, I guess, we've been working the southern half of Michigan. Um, but over the last year or two, that's really picked up. And now we cover uh, the entirety of the lower peninsula. Uh, we even have a couple of people interested in, in working with us up in the upper peninsula. So we're really focused now more with uh, ag and uh, crop irrigation uh, and the water uh, sources for, for that irrigation. And that's why the conversation today will apply to our listeners wherever they are, because it's becoming more and more of a focus to them about what the world thinks of water quality. Isn't that true? It is. We hear very often that, uh, you know, the world is running out of water. Um, you know, we're in, in really effect. What we're doing is we're not destroying water. We're not creating water. Uh, we're simply moving it from one place to another inside the water cycle. So um, a lot of the problem, I think, with, with the water use, very easy to talk about surface waters. Those are easy to see, easy to kind of wrap your mind around. When we talk about the groundwater systems, there's a lot of mystery there to people, a lot of terms that are unfamiliar, scientific terms, uh, but also a lack of understanding. Uh, we'll often hear about underground lakes or underground rivers. Uh, it, it's just simply not true. Uh, it's just not the way it works. Um, you know, we talk about pore spaces in, in sands and gravels and, and even clay materials uh, and fractures in bedrock aquifers. Uh, but the, the underground rivers and underground lakes, lakes are, uh, are quite rare. So it, it really does become a, a matter of trying to educate people uh, and speak in more non-technical way. I've always felt that if you were an expert in your field, you ought to be able to explain it in layman's terms. And if you can't, I would maintain that you don't know your field very well. No, I think that's a, a really good point. So is your role as a hydrogeological consultant, did I say that correctly? Yes, you did, yep. With, with Midwest Water Stewards, as you guys work with farmers in that area, what are some things you're able to provide them? Well, we focus on both the groundwater and the surface water. Um, and so there's a lot of interest in the connection between the two of them. And if you utilize water from one of those resources, how does it impact another one? Uh, Michigan in particular has a system called the Water Withdrawal Assessment Process. Uh, and they've got a lot of modeling uh, and, and use models to kind of predict um, if we do pump a well, how does it impact a nearby stream? And so looking at those interference effects between the systems, within the systems, how they interrelate with each other, um, it, it's a complicated process, but we, we try to make it boil it down more simply. 
Um, and so what we're really looking at is doing, and, and we're huge believers in making data-based decisions. Uh, we believe that's the first step and forms the basis and the base, the foundation, if you will, uh, of the rest of the work uh, moving forward. I mean, obviously, then you'd move into modeling and, and doing predictions based on your data. Uh, and then the top piece is to do education on that. But we start pretty simple. We start by getting our field crews out into the streams and rivers, measure what's there, um, we install a lot of monitoring wells in irrigation fields. Um, and so we're directly measuring the impacts, um, the, the interference when a well turns on um, within a couple hundred feet of that irrigation system. And so we're actually able to then determine how fast water moves through the subsurface and how much water is stored in the subsurface. Those are critical numbers to have especially if you're gonna develop you know, reasonable and representative models. So we do keep it pretty simple in the field. Um, we try not to make that too complicated, um, but there is a lot that goes into it. Uh, there's a lot of high-tech equipment, uh, and then there's a lot of analysis after the fact as well. Uh, but the layperson, very simply for them, we're measuring you know, how much flow is in the streams. Um, we're also measuring how much water does the stream gain or lose as you move from downstream to upstream or upstream to downstream um, and we're measuring how fast can water move across the stream bed uh, if it's a clay it doesn't move much if it's sand and gravels um, then then it actually can percolate through and there can be more of an exchange between the surface water and the groundwater as far as the groundwater systems go you know we use the the, the monitoring wells uh, the monitoring wells directly measure the impact of the irrigation well. They also give us an indication from season to season, what do the water levels do? Like within a year, you know, we find that groundwater levels go up and down about three feet just due to precipitation events. And, and so we see that most people have the concept that groundwater is just stable and flat year round. And, and that's just not true. It does naturally vary. Um, and then we look even longer term, you know, year to year to year. So our, you know, 2012 obviously was a drought year. And so we had, you know, water levels were dropping both in streams and the groundwater system. Uh, but then we had really wet years in 18, 19, and 20. And so we see a corresponding where water levels are rising. So just because the water levels this year uh, may be a little bit lower, we're not sure yet what 2023 is going to look like. But if the water levels this year are a little bit lower than they were in 2020, it's more likely related to precipitation, you know, in snow snowfall than it is to, um, you know, irrigation or, or pumping of the groundwater system. So we try to keep it simple with the streams and the monitoring wells, uh, but there's a lot of implications and we can really get a, a much better understanding of both how the subsurface and the surface water systems uh, are functioning. So in our conversation before we started recording, we talked a little bit about why the data and the modeling is so important. But for our listeners, could you tell them why it is becoming even increasingly more important? Absolutely. Uh, you know, we we work in we work in and live in a very technical society, and we're very used to predictions, and we're very used to using modeling to do forecasting. Uh, it's in the news all the time. Most of us use it in our jobs and in you know, all different venues, not just in the sciences. Um, but we, we would always maintain that 
using a model to do predictions is necessary, but it's also necessary that that model be verified. Um, we need the real world data to make sure that the model is actually predicting correctly. And so if we generate a model and we have an opinion and an idea of how things work, that's a, maybe our opinion or our theory. Maybe it's based on some field observations, maybe it's not. But at the end of the day, when we put something on the table and say, hey, we think we know how this works. We think we know how much impact you have when you run your well on the groundwater and on the surface water. We better have some measurements to back that up. We need to earn trust as modelers that we can actually do a reasonable job of predicting um, how the natural world is functioning. And the minute we stop doing that, the minute we stop collecting data or we just rely on you know, our opinion, our theory, we rely on a computer um, to generate something for us, we've really lost that element of being trustworthy. Um, we need to be able to prove to people, to ourselves, to our communities, um, that what we think is happening and how we're modeling it actually bears resemblance to the real world. Um, and that's just a critical, critical part uh, of modeling and a critical part of earning trust, especially when things get contentious. Yeah, exactly. You don't usually get very far in a negotiation or a conversation if there is a lack of trust. So as you and the people that you partner with look forward to the future, what are you most excited about tackling? Uh, we, you know, we started in 2009 and we started with, with six monitoring wells. Uh, you know, we're a pretty small firm and we work with growers. A lot of our business is done on virtue of a handshake. And over the last 15 years, it's just gotten larger. And, and I think our message of earning trust and I think our message of collecting real world data to measure what the problems are, you know, out there, if there is a problem out there, um, is really resonating. You know, as of the end of 2022, we were up to 185 monitoring wells across northern Indiana and Michigan. And we're already slated this year to get up to 240. So we're continuing to grow. And, you know, I like to say in a lot of the presentations or meetings, uh, it's really hard to argue with data. If we show a water level graph and we've done a good job of collecting that data, it's really hard to argue with that. It's not an opinion, it's just a measurement. So if we see water levels going up or going down and we can match that to precipitation, that's a big deal. If we can say, hey, when we run a well, we know what the impact is, we've measured it. That's a big deal. It's an easy way to earn trust. And, and I think as our database has grown, as we have more data in streams and more data in the groundwater system, as that continues to spread from Southwest Michigan up towards the bridge and beyond, and, and we can also tie it across the state border down into Indiana, as we see the same patterns over multiple types of geology, um, and as we, we start measuring those, I really do think we're kind of leading the way um, in showing, hey, look, here's a great way to monitor our own selves, we're, we're looking at the impacts that our clients are causing. We're being upfront about that. And, and I, I get excited about the future in that it brings some reality to it. Look, I'm a consultant. My job essentially is to be a mediator, uh, you know, especially in a field that requires some high technical expertise. Um, and I get excited about the fact that 
this is a tool that can bring people together. You may come at it from a different perspective. You may be a fisheries guy. You may be an environmental activist. You may worry about your lake level or your, your local you know, rivers that you, you live nearby or that you fish. But at the end of the day, we're all living together in the same communities and we all have a vested interest in protecting those communities. So we have common ground already. And I think the data really tends to bring or take the heat down in rooms and in discussions pretty rapidly um, because it is, it's just really difficult to argue with that. You may think that this is happening, but if you see data that says it's not, then that's what it is. You know, on the flip side, if if a grower, if we're working with a, a grower or a crop irrigator and we see or we measure water levels that are declining each and every year and they're related directly to his, you know, irrigation practices, you know, we've always maintained with our clients, we're going to tell you that and you're going to need to change your practices. And, and if you don't, we're not going to be working with you anymore. You know, we are here to protect the environment and to use it um, in a sustainable manner. It's an incredible resource uh, with multiple different facets to it. Um, and I'm really excited to, to be able to use this kind of work to bring people together in a manner where they can start to trust each other, because then we can start to have conversations um, and we can be realistic about expectations on everybody. Um, and it really takes a lot of the noise. Uh, so to say, out of the room in those types of discussions. Yeah, I love this. And I know our listeners are going to be intrigued to learn more about you. What's the best way if they want to contact you or look up more information on Midwest Water Stewards? Sure. We, we've got a webpage, uh, MidwestWaterStewards.com. Um, you can look there. We also maintain a Facebook page. Um, and I'm not a huge social media fan, to be honest. But at the same time, uh, it's a really useful page. And what we do on that page in particular is it's almost all photos. And we're using that to educate people on how this data can be collected, what that looks like. Um, every year in the spring, just before the irrigation starts, right in around May or so, we'll put a post up of a water level graph, you know, from one of our monitoring wells and say, hey, here's where the starting levels are this year. And here's what we're expecting to see. Here's what last year looked like. Um, and kind of give a little bit of a forecast, you know, as much as we're able to. Um, but it's a really, it's a really interesting page in the sense that there's a lot of beautiful things that we see out in, you know, nature as we work in the environment, and and we're sharing those online. And I think it takes some of the mystery out, but it's also encouraging people and letting people know, look, here's the areas that we're doing work in. Here's what we're seeing out there. Here's how we're doing it. We're trying really hard to meet that educational aspect of this. So I would say that, you know, the, the Facebook page and the web page are, are both great starting points. Um, and then I speak 20 sometimes a year. Um, we're always willing to share that information uh, with others and for with a variety of different groups as well. This has been perfect, Todd. We appreciate you taking the time to share your story with our listeners, and hopefully they reach out to dig into it a little bit more. Absolutely. I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you this morning. Well, Jennifer, that certainly sounded like a great conversation there with Todd.
Absolutely. Glad that Tanner was able to cover that and get some great information on all things water with him. I am as well. We've got one more great conversation coming up tomorrow. A little fun Friday interview, if you will. So listeners do stay tuned for that. Jennifer, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go. (laughs) 